those who don't know me, I'm Jeremy Humble. I'm one of the elders here at Crossbridge and also privileged to be a member of our speaking team. Um, last night, as Will was saying, we had a worship night here last night. How many of you were here with us last night? It was awesome. I, I heard it was an absolutely amazing night. Now, I say that because, unfortunately, I wasn't able to be here, and I'm kind of bummed about that. But I was actually at a really, really cool event. Um, my wife and I got to go to a fundraising event for the Top Sports Organization, which is an amazing organization run by a family actually in our church, started by and run by uh, them. And it's a really cool organization. And my daughter actually got to persis- participate recently in their basketball program, uh, playing basketball with them. And really started to kind of get into basketball. She's been playing it, been practicing it for hours, uh, playing it on the PlayStation, and watching it on TV. So I've kind of been joining in with her a little bit. I'm not really a huge NBA fan, but I've been watching some basketball with her. And if any of you are fans, you know that two weeks ago they had the NBA All-Star Weekend. And one of the things they do during the All-Star Weekend is they have this thing called the dunk competition. It's been going on for decades, and it's typically been where the best players come and put, kind of show their performances of these amazing, cool, skillful dunks that they do. Except the last few years, it's really been kind of bad. It's just not really been all that exciting. Um, and when I looked at the roster of who's taking place in this last year's dunk competition, it, it turned out I didn't actually know any of the guys' names that were on this list. So I really wasn't looking forward to it going in. In fact, I was actually really surprised and shocked to realize that one of the guys on that list, there's only four guys on this list, one of the four guys is a 76er. And I looked at the guy's name, and I had no idea who he even was. And it turns out, this guy was signed to the Sixers roster two days before the dunk competition. This is how pathetic this competition is starting to look. So, and I see this picture of this guy. He's this fairly short guy, and I'm just going to say it, this is a fairly short white guy who... He really looks more like a junior investment banker than a guy who's going to go win the dunk competition. And I don't think that probably many folks expected a whole lot out of him. But when it's his turn, well. And he's putting on the handle. Go. You have won me over, Matt. I'm going to say this. Matt McClung. Matt McClung has saved the dunk contest. Wait, wait, let me see. Two years straight. straight. That's a 720. That's almost oh a 720. Oh, my goodness. Wow. That's a 360. So, how did Mac do? Well, he not only competed in the dunk competition after being on an NBA roster for two whole days, he won the contest. Mac didn't just win the contest. Eight of his nine scores were perfect scores across all his dunks that he did. What he did was so incredible and innovative that he may have actually single-handedly saved the future of the dunk contest. Now, this is a really fun example of having our expectations of what someone looks like based on um, you know, what they're looking like or what we think we know of their background. Our expectations are completely blown up. But the reality is that We judge people in situations based on very small pieces of information all the time. We do this for all sorts of reasons. We do it because of what we've heard, read, or experienced. And it's taught us to expect certain things based on someone's background, based on their appearance or behavior. 
We do it because it saves a lot of time and energy, doesn't it? By not constantly starting every relationship, every conversation from zero in every situation. Or maybe we do it because we're protecting ourselves from someone or some situation because of our past hurts in similar circumstances. We make decisions at work, in the world, with our friends, in our churches, with our family, in regards to that guy driving down the shoulder on 295 because he's trying to skip all the traffic. And even in our own lives, we make decisions based on these judgments. And just like with Mac McClung, sometimes these judgments are wrong. But unlike the pleasantly surprising results of Mac McClung, those wrong judgments can lead to bad decisions that have devastating impacts in the lives of those around us and for us as well. The truth is, what we see isn't always what we get. So if you've been judged by someone by what you see, or if you've judged someone else, or they've, you've been judged, you'll be really able to kind of relate to this story, I think, that we're going to look at in the life of David today. Last week, we kick off this series, and Pastor Jimmy introduced us to this kid named David. He's the youngest of the family. He's a kid shepherd that's really living in obscurity. So before David ever experiences the moment that Brianna read for us this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 16, I think it's important to know that right at this point, there's only been one king in Israel. Before this king, you see, there's a bunch of judges for about 300 to 350 years that God raises up. There are men and women that God raises up in times of need for Israel, and they lead Israel, but really God is the leader during all this time, a time when Israel is a tribal nation. But as these tribes begin to settle in their land, they start to look around at the nations around them. And what they see is that all these other nations have a king, and they like what they see. And so they decide that that's what they'd rather be ruled by. They'd rather be ruled by a king than by God and these judges. So God, he, he kind of angrily agrees to give them what they want. But he warns them through the prophet Samuel that what a king is going to do, a king is going to take from them. It's not going to be what they expect. The king is going to make demands of them. But the people insist, and God relents. So remember, they've never had a king up to this point. So where do you even begin this process? Well, they don't. Everyone kind of goes back to their business until one day God tells Samuel he's going to meet a man from the tribe of Benjamin and he should anoint this man as the king of Israel. So what type of person do you guys think that Samuel's looking for? What's he looking for? What, what would you look for if you're looking for the king of Israel? You can go ahead. Big and strong. I like that. Someone else, well, Saul isn't even around yet. That's who he's looking at. So, so yeah, it's someone that looks like Saul. So the next day, Samuel meets this man, and this is how First Samuel describes him. There was a wealthy, influential man named Kish from the tribe of Benjamin. His son Saul was the most handsome man in Israel, head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the land. If Samuel looked at the image of a king in the same way that the rest of these tribes are looking for an image of a king, I think he'd completely understand why God is picking Saul. As far as looks go, Saul absolutely stands out. He's the son of a wealthy and influential man. He's big, he's tall, he's strong, he's handsome. A Hollywood casting director would be falling all over himself to cast this guy as the leaning man in his next action movie. 
So when God tells Samuel that Saul is the man he is anointing as the king of Israel, Saul doesn't seem surprised here at all. He approaches him and he tells him, you know, come join me for dinner. And, And Samuel says, I am here to tell you that you and your family are the focus of all of Israel's hopes. And Saul replies, but I'm only from the tribe of Benjamin, the smallest tribe in Israel. And my family, it's the least important of all the families of the tribe. Why are you talking to me like this? So Samuel, he basically tells Saul, God has chosen you to lead Israel. And instead of stepping into that calling, Saul immediately questions it. I can only imagine how many people in Israel, if Samuel walked up to them and told them, hey, you're going to be the king, they'd be super excited about this, right? They're going to be, I'm the king of Israel. They're going to be excited. But that's not Saul's reaction at all. And I'll be honest, I 100% identify with Saul right here. If you came up and told me I'm going to be the next president, I don't think so. That's not what I have in mind. I do not want that. But notice that Saul, he doesn't question the calling because he served something different from God. He doesn't say to Samuel, that's not what God's called me to do. He doesn't tell Samuel, you know what, that sounds really hard. I don't want to do it because that sounds like a lot of work. No, he questions what he's being told because of his biggest insecurity. Saul doesn't believe that he can be king because he believes that he's not important enough. He believes he's not good enough. And it sounds a lot like his mental state is very similar to what we looked at last week. But I'm just a, I'm just a. Even the most outwardly put together people deal with insecurity. And they struggle with their identity. What I find so interesting here is how Saul's judgment of himself and his family, it doesn't really even seem to match up with what we read, right? He's, he's right. The tribe of Benjamin, it is the smallest tribe in all of Israel. But contrast that with his claim that his family is the least of all these families in the tribe, with Samuel's description of Saul's father as being rich and influential. And we can see something seems a little off here, right? Either the culture around Saul is telling him that his family doesn't matter because of his ancestors maybe didn't matter, or Saul has just convinced himself of this for whatever reason. Now, between this point where he's being anointed by Samuel and then his actual coronation, we actually see this amazing transformation happen with Saul. We read that God gives him a new heart and that God's spirit fills Saul so powerfully that he begins to go prophesy with other prophets. I think that's something that if you're aware of the story of Saul, we we skip over that a lot. We forget that this happened. He's filled with God's spirit so powerfully that he goes around prophesying with other prophets. Though, unfortunately, when we get to his actual coronation, we kind of seem to get the old Saul back. In 1 Samuel 10, we pick up in the middle of his ceremony with the entire nation of Israel here to coronate him, and we read, But when they looked for him, him being Saul, he had disappeared. So they asked the Lord, Where is he? And the Lord replied, He is hiding amongst the baggage. So they found him, and they brought him out, and he stood head and shoulders above anyone else. Then Samuel said to all the people, This is the man the Lord has chosen as your king. No one in all Israel is like him. Now, I don't know. At this point, it almost sounds sarcastic. I mean, having to track down the guy who is cowering in the baggage to crown him as your first king, that's not exactly how you draw it up, is it? 
And yet the people, they're excited. They applaud. They cheer. They're tall, handsome, powerful new king. What we see isn't always what we get, is it? I want you to keep this in mind because about 27 years later, Saul, he's been disobeying God, and God tells Samuel, it's time to go anoint someone else to be the new king. So now, this is the second time that God has instructed Samuel to go and anoint the new king of Israel. So at this point, what do you think Samuel's looking for? Probably the same thing that he was looking for before and the same thing that he got before. I don't think it's a stretch to assume we'd all be thinking that God has the same type of person in mind as the first time around. God's going to be looking for the tallest, the strongest, the most handsome man who's going to look the part of a king to represent his country to the rest of the nations. So this time God tells Samuel he's going to go to a man named Jesse and that he will tell Samuel now which of Jesse's sons he's to anoint as the next king. So it's no surprise that when he gets there, Samuel takes one look at Jesse's oldest son, Eliab, and thinks, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But it's in this thought where God reveals something about himself that I don't think Samuel ever expected to hear. God speaks to Samuel and he says, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance but the Lord judges at the heart, looks at the heart. And I'm sure this has to be somewhat surprising to everyone involved here. See, in this culture, the oldest son would by default be the next head of the family, and he'd be honored above all of the rest. This also seems to be in direct contrast to what happened the first time around with the selection of Saul, who outwardly fits the profile of a king perfectly. But Samuel listens to God, and one by one, Jesse's sons are brought before Samuel, and one by one, God says no. And if you joined us in our last message with Pastor Jimmy, you already know that when we get through all the sons, Samuel has to actually ask Jesse if he has any other sons. And Jesse very kind of dismissively acknowledges that his youngest son's out watching over his flocks. And as Pastor Jimmy pointed out, this word that we see, the word he uses when referring to him as the youngest, is basically saying that David's the least of all of these sons. Now, for any of you oldest children out there like me, I'm sure that you're scoffing at this right now. There's no way that the baby of the family is treated as the least. No way. But remember, this is a different culture, and the oldest sons were given the inheritance and the blessing, just like it should be. <laughs> the older sons, they're the ones helping provide for and protect the family. The youngest sons, they're really just a burden on the rest of the family because they're only able to do the least of all of the work. And this is how David's own family, his own father, is looking at him. This is the lens that David is looked at by everyone else. He's like the Mac McClung of his family and culture. But 10-year-old David, he's brought before Samuel, and as he comes, God tells Samuel, this is the one that he's chosen. We don't get any more of Samuel's thoughts right here, but this has to be jarring to Samuel. It just, it has to be. The first time around, God chooses this big, strong guy who looks the definition of a king, and now, while that guy is still king, Samuel is being told to anoint a small, 10-year-old, least of these boy, whose family sees him as so insignificant that he's not even invited to take part in this entire ceremony. Samuel expected it to be the oldest brother as soon as he laid eyes on him because that's what his experience told him. And because, 
quite frankly, that's what his culture told him. It's what his eyes told him. And let's be honest, it's because it's what makes the most sense, right? Sure, it's easy for us to sit here today and tell ourselves that, of course God chose David to be anointed as the king because David's a great king. He goes out and he kills Goliath with just his little sling. He returns the Ark of the Covenant to Israel. He defeats all of Israel's enemies. But right now, none of that has happened. God has just told Samuel to anoint a 10-year-old boy to be the next king of Israel. I mean, things were a little bit different back then. A 10-year-old was given a lot more responsibilities than we usually give a 10-year-old now. But guys, 10-year-old boy, have you met a 10-year-old boy? Speaking as a former 10-year-old boy, they're not very high on my list of someone who I would choose to lead a nation. My apologies to any 10-year-old boys that are listening to this. But it's true. And I think it's important to pause for a moment and point out that the reasons that we judge others are often very logical. Samuel's immediate judgment that the oldest son was the one to be anointed makes all the sense in the world. It makes sense culturally. It makes sense stature-wise. It lines up with his past experience, and yet, it's still wrong. How many times do we judge others or the motives of others for reasons that seem to make a ton of sense? We judge the motives of our boss or our coworkers because that's what someone else has told us to expect or because that's what we expect from Gen Z or that's what we expect from millennials. That's who they are. We judge the words or actions of a loved one because we've been hurt by someone else's words or actions previously. We assume we know what someone is all about as soon as we find out what political party they voted for because that's what we read or we've heard those people think. We've been told or conditioned to believe things about people based on their gender, the color of their skin, the shape of their body. And that guy driving down the shoulder of 295 while we're stuck in traffic, they're obviously a selfish jerk who's too impatient to wait because secretly that's what we wish we were doing, right, is driving down that shoulder. I mean, it can't possibly be because that guy's racing to the hospital where the doctors are trying to save his child's life. And there's the rub. We judge others on what seems to make sense to us based on our own experience and what we see, but oh, how often we judge while only looking at the surface. But remember what God told Samuel. The Lord doesn't see things the way we see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. He cares about what's inside. He cares about the entire picture, not just how good things look on the outside, Jesus speaks directly to this in Matthew when he addresses the Pharisees. These are religious leaders at the time. And he admonishes them saying, Hypocrites, for you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. Now, if you're a parent, I know you understand this because we've all been there at some point. You're cleaning out your car and you reach under the seat and you find that bottle or that cup and you pull it out and it looks great on the outside. And the first time, it's only the first time you do this because you're stupid. Let's just admit it. You're stupid that first time. You open that cup and there's fetid, rotten odor of that spoiled milk or formula and it hits your nose and you're probably retching a little right now just remembering how awful that smell is 
everything looks great on the outside of that cup. But if you hand that cup to your kid, that nastiness inside is going to make for a real bad time for everybody. What's, wait, what's inside that cup is so much more important than what's on the outside of that cup. And to get that thing clean, you're going to have to scrub and scrub the inside of that. And as we scrub and scrub, what happens? The outside begins to come clean too. But yet, how often do we go about polishing up the outside of our lives to look beautiful while the inside is full of festering milk? And when we look at others, so often we only bother to look at the outside of their cup that they're bringing to the table rather than what's inside that cup. Or we see a cup that we've seen before and we immediately assume that we know what's inside that cup. How many times do we hurt others because we assume that we know what they're really all about rather than hearing their heart? How many fights do we start because we hear one thing when they're really saying another? How often do we blow up relationships because we incorrectly attribute bad motives because that's what our experience teaches us to expect? How often do we assume that someone's doing just fine because they seem to have it all put together on the outside, but really they're struggling desperately on the inside? How many times do we lose out on blessings because we refuse to listen to God speaking through someone else because we don't believe that we or they are good enough because we're only looking at the outside or because we know what's on our inside. So the question becomes, if what we see isn't always what we get, what can we do so that we don't continue to go around hurting others and hurting ourselves with our rush to judgment? First, I think it starts with know who you are. Know who you are. When we don't know who we are, it leads to all sorts of messes. Saul, he's this big, tall, strong, handsome man. He's chosen by God to lead Israel, but he never truly knows who he is. That insecurity we see when he questions if he's really good enough, and then he goes and he hides from his own coronation, that insecurity dominates the rest of his life. As David gets older and he begins to have success throughout the nation of Israel, Saul's insecurity turns into jealousy so fierce that he over and over tries to murder David. God told Saul that he was his chosen, and he even sent his spirit upon him, and yet Saul never could fully accept that he was God's chosen. On the other hand, David, the 10-year-old least of his brothers, he's anointed in front of his brothers. And as Israel's army cowers before Goliath, in fear, teenage David goes out with just his sling and slays Goliath. David's life is filled with plenty of huge mistakes in his life. But through it all, David knows. He knows who he is. We read over and over again in the book of Psalms of David going to God, acknowledging that God is his light, that God is his shepherd, his comfort, his strength, his rock. David knows that he is God's chosen and that his only path to success is through trusting and relying on God. And so even when life gets tough, even when the king's trying to murder him, or even when David himself has committed great sin, David knows that he's still God's chosen, and he falls back on him and trusts in the Almighty God. For some of you, when you read Jesus' words in Matthew 7, in Matthew 7, Jesus tells us that we are going to be judged in the same way that we judge others. When you read those words, that might actually seem like a relief to you because the truth is that you judge yourself much more harshly than you judge anyone around you. 
fear and insecurity boil inside of you, and it changes not only how you view yourself, but how you view others and how you think that they view you. Like Saul, you're listening to other voices, real or imagined, that are telling you that you're not good enough, you're not worthy, you're not old enough, you're not young enough, you're not important enough. You're just too messed up. As Jimmy put it last week, you're a justa. That's what you believe. And it's messing up your relationships with others. It's sabotaging your own life. And one of the worst parts is that you think that that's all you are and that's all you'll ever be. But I stand in front of you this morning and I'm telling you, that is a lie. That is a lie. You're created in the image of God to be his child and more than anything in the world, what he wants for you is for you to know that you belong to him, that you are his child and that is who you are. You are the beloved of the God who created the universe and he sent his own son to die for you. Not for everyone else, for you. For you, for your neighbor, for your wife, for your husband, and for you. And when you put your hope and trust in Jesus, that, that is your identity. That is who you are, and nobody can ever take that away from you or change that. When you know that you are God's chosen, you no longer need to judge yourself because God's mercy has lifted that judgment from you. Look, I know, I know this can be hard. I know this can be hard to accept because God has to remind me of this constantly. I am constantly fighting this battle of knowing who I am. How easily I forget that. But when you know that you are God's chosen and God's spirit dwells within you, the distorted lenses of fear and self-doubt that we see things through begin to fall away. And we not only see ourselves as God sees us, but we begin to see others properly too. And our relationships begin to change. Fear, doubt, hurt, bitterness, they no longer taint the way that we view the world around us. When we know who we truly are and we stand firm in that, no longer do we assign false motives to others as easily because we don't need to be afraid of how they look at us. No longer do we need to allow others to diminish who we are because we know just how valuable God sees us. God, he's going to work in us to clean out that garbage inside of our cup so that that rancid garbage is gone and we're able to share with others what's pure and refreshing and life-giving that God fills us with. When we know who we are, not only do people get what they see with us because God's working to clean the inside to match the outside of our cup, we're able to better look past the outside of others and see them the way God sees them. Pretenses no longer matter people matter. Even when we know who we are, it's not always easy to see things properly, though. Samuel, Samuel's a great prophet. He's a man of God. Samuel, he knows who he is, and yet what happens? He assumes incorrectly who God is choosing to be Israel's next leader. Now, I think there's an, actually an interesting contrast in how God tells Samuel to select the next king of Israel and the first king of Israel. See, when Saul chooses Saul to be the next king, remember the night before, God tells uh, Samuel, this is how it's going to happen. You're going to go out, and these things are going to happen, and you're going to meet this man, and that's who you're going to anoint as king. So when Samuel meets Saul, there's really no question who God intends to be king. In fact, I'm sure when Samuel sees him, it absolutely makes sense. He looks like the king. But the second time around, God is much more vague when it comes to David. He only tells Samuel that he has chosen one of Jesse's sons. So he sets up this situation where Samuel wrongly assumes that Jesse's oldest son, Eliab, is the one to be anointed. When we know who we are, we're less likely to rush to judgment and leave messes in our wake. But 
we see Samuel still rush to judgment, even though he knows who he is. But even though Samuel got it wrong to begin with, I think we can look to him for another tool so that we're not surprised when what we see isn't what we get. So how does Samuel make sure he's on the same page as God? It's pretty simple. He listens. Remember last week when we learned that our identity is formed in silence, not the spectacular? Well, when we slow down and listen, it gives God a chance to speak. There's a reason that the phrase rush to judgment is associated with bad outcomes. Right after Samuel thought to himself that Eliab must be the new king, we read, but the Lord said to Samuel. And when David first appears before Samuel, we read, and the Lord said. Samuel, he has his own idea of what the next king looks like, but he knows who God actually wants because he's listening for God's voice. We live in a culture, don't we, that doesn't exactly emphasize slowing down or listening. Oh, you know, we, we know it's important. I mean, how many movies have we watched where the central conceit of the movie is there's a family who's in total disarray, everyone's about to get divorced, and what happens is they move from the bustling city into the quiet country where they are forced to slow down and actually talk to each other and listen, and things somehow get better. I mean, our culture doesn't emphasize these things, but we know that we should slow down and listen. Social media, it gives everyone a platform to talk, and everyone's talking, but how many people are listening? The truth is, we're not good at listening to each other, and we're not good at listening for God. And now, let me be very clear. Listening to God, it's not when everything breaks down in our life and we go, God, please show me what I need to do. Please speak to me. Okay, God, what do I need to do with my children? I'm at the end of my rope. All right. All right. Deuteronomy 28.53. What are you saying to me, God? What do I do with my children? The siege and terrible distress of the enemy's attack will be so severe that you will eat the flesh of your own sons and daughters. What? God, what? That's, come on, guys. That is not how we listen to God. That is biblical Russian roulette. That is not how we listen to God. So how do we actually listen to God? I mean, have you ever wondered how can you possibly know when it's God talking to you versus something that you're just kind of making up in your own head or maybe worse, something speaking evil to you? It's easy to say, listen to God, but how do you even do that? Well, first, we need to slow down and we need to spend time with God on a regular basis if we want to hear from him. If we don't know who he is, how can we identify his voice? We need to be spending regular time with God in his word. This is the living, breathing word of God, and when we spend time actively reading it, we get to know God's voice, and he speaks to us through his word. If you've been joining us as we soap together, that's how we read scripture together as a church, you know this is true, that as you spend time actively reading the Bible, you begin to know God's voice. And what happens is, when we think we hear God in other ways, if someone else is speaking to us and saying that they have something from God for us, we can check it with God's word. And when we know God's word, we know whether that's God speaking to us or not. And when something somebody else is telling us doesn't line up with this, whether it's from the person next to you, whether it's from one of the elders here, whether it's from Pastor Jimmy, when it doesn't line up with this, what you're reading, you can begin to question whether that's God's word for you or whether that's their word for you. 
we also need to be spending time with God in prayer. This doesn't have to be something that's complicated. This doesn't have to be special words that we have to know. This is just a heart conversation between you and God. And as we pray, God begins to reveal himself to us, and he speaks to our hearts. Just like you're never going to get to know somebody if you don't sit down and have a conversation with them, you're never going to truly know God if you're not spending time in prayer with him. You're going to have a hard time discerning his voice. This is something that David actually does incredibly well. He goes to God constantly, both in the good times and the bad times. If you're not sure how to pray, a great way to start is just read through the Psalms and pray through the Psalms. Yeah, these are mostly songs and they're poems that David had written, but more than that, they're prayers between David and God. God, David is constantly ripping his heart open and pouring out emotion, raw emotion, revealing himself fully to God in an effort to know God as intimately as possible. And he doesn't just wait until something really bad happens or he really needs something in his life. He's constantly spending time with God in prayer. Now just remember, prayer isn't simply going and talking to God or at God, but it's the sitting in silence waiting to hear from him as well. We don't like to do that, do we? Just as our identity is shaped in the silence, silence is when we hear from God as well. God, guess what? He doesn't want to compete with all the other stuff going on in our life. He doesn't want to have to shout to be heard. He doesn't want to be second fiddle trying to compete with all that. He wants our undivided attention. And to do that, you have to sit and listen. If we're not making time to quiet ourselves and listen for God's voice, what we're doing is we're allowing the world to drown out his voice, and you'll never be able to discern his voice when we need to listen. When we slow down and we listen for God's voice, it begins to change then our relationships with those around us because our hearts begin to change and look more like God's heart, and we begin to see people as God sees them. Our judgment in situations actually becomes better because we listen to the Holy Spirit and he speaks to us. And yes, good judgment is a good thing. We are instructed that we're not to judge the hearts of others because we're to love others, but we are called to have good judgment in situations. Just as Samuel listened for God's voice and was able to anoint the young boy David, who would grow into the standard that all future kings of Israel will be measured against, God's voice still speaks to us today. If we're taking the time to listen. Slowing down and listening, you know what? It works surprisingly well with other people as well, doesn't it? You want to know someone's true heart and what they're all about? Stop rushing to judge someone based on what you think you heard or what you think you know and spend time actually listening to them. Yeah, that's a whole lot harder, a whole lot messier, and a whole lot slower than just being able to make a quick judgment. But it's the only way to actually know someone and know someone's heart. And that's what we all truly want deep down, isn't it? To be known. To have someone care enough to truly know us. But guess what? We're too scared, aren't we? Or we're too busy, or we're too jaded, or we're too hurt. What we see isn't always what we get, but you know what? I think many of us are okay with that. Many of us are okay keeping everything at surface level because we're too busy, we're too tired, we're too scared, we're too hurt, and we think that we can just skate by and everything's going to turn out okay-ish. Or maybe it's because we believe that the mess inside of our cup defines us, and that if anyone knew how messed up we are inside, we could never be loved. Going beyond the surface 
it just feels too risky. But the blessings that we miss out on or the danger that we walk into can be life-changing because we don't know who we are, because we didn't take the time to slow down and listen. Saul, he looked like the perfect king, but that outward appearance covered up a nasty surprise for the nation of Israel because Saul's identity wasn't rooted in God. If Samuel hadn't listened for and known God's voice, if he wasn't able to look beyond what he could see, he may have anointed Eliab to be the king instead of the 10-year-old boy David, and Israel would have missed out on their greatest king, a man who knew that he was chosen and anointed by God, who stood tall with a servant's heart, because he knew who his shepherd was. When we settle for surface appearances, we can trick ourselves into believing that everything will be just fine and just as it appears. But we risk far greater danger and missing out on far greater blessings when we do so. What we see isn't always what we get because the heart, the heart is a tricky thing to know. And we often go out of our way to hide what's inside of us from others and even ourselves sometimes. We spend a lot of time polishing up the outside of our cups for each other, don't we? Do you know who you are today? Do you truly know who you are? Not who you want to be or who you want others to think you are, but who you really are. How different would our lives and relationships look if we truly believed that we are God's chosen children and we stood on that rather than projecting out our insecurities onto others? It, what would happen if we were less concerned with how others judge us and less concerned with how others appear and more concerned with how much God loves us and how much he wants us to love others? What would it look like if we all slowed down and actually listened? First for God's voice, but also to the voices of the people around us. How many times have we missed true connections with each other, missed someone's pain that they're hiding, or missed out on tremendous blessings for ourselves because it was easier and faster to operate on what we saw on the surface rather than taking the time to slow down and listen? If we truly want the best for ourselves and the best for others, it means refusing to settle for the easy. Our eyes, our eyes are easily deceived. So what we see isn't always what we get. When we begin taking the time and making the effort to know who we are, and we take the time to slow down and listen for God's voice into the hearts of others, we can begin to see those around us through God's eyes. And guys, God always knows what he's getting. This should bring us hope. This should bring us hope because Jesus, Jesus knew who he was surrounded with. He knew who surrounded him at the table during the Last Supper. Who surrounded him? A collection of men who rushed to judgment about each other. Others around him, and even Jesus. Yet, Jesus, he still washed their feet, and he pointed to the bread and the cup as a reminder of what he would do to center us around his heart again. This morning as we prepare for communion, if you've placed your trust in Jesus, I ask that you come and join us this morning in communion. If, if you haven't chosen to follow Jesus, um, 
I would urge you just to hold back. The Bible says that, you know, it's okay that we would trust you to hold back. But before you come this morning, I'd like you to take a little bit of time. Just take a few moments in prayer and prayerfully go to God and ask, Lord, are there people that I've been judging? Are there people that I haven't been listening to? Are there people at work? Are there people in my family? Are there neighbors that I've been looking at the surface and assuming I know what's going on and I've been hurting them or maybe I've been missing out? And if God's putting somebody on your heart, just confess that to him. Confess that to him and lift that up to him this morning. So take a little bit of time, 30 seconds, a minute, pray. When you're ready, come on up and take communion together.